Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone. And I can't believe I've been saying that for over six years years now. It is truly amazing to me that I've been doing this show for that long, five years on broadcast as well as podcast. And for the last um, year and plus, I have been doing it live streaming with various different platforms, but very successfully with Restream.io. So thank you, Restream, for making it so easy to go live. Love it, love it, love it. Love the technology. But most of all, my listeners, I love being here with all of you, whether you are watching us on video on the live stream on all your social platforms, or whether you're listening on the podcast, because you've taken the show to the top 3% globally of all podcasts. And there's like 2.7 or 2.8 million podcasts out there. So I am very grateful for all of you. Mostly I am grateful for the notes, the emails, the text messages, and the reviews that you all have left over the years on the show about my book, all of those different things. That conversation is what keeps me going and gets so many amazing guests on the show because they love hearing your feedback. And I love it as well. So keep those coming. Remember, you can always get me at itsallaboutthequestions.com or on any of the social media platforms. You can typically find me, the Laura Stewart, on all of the social media platforms. So let's dive right in today with my next guest, who's somebody I've known for a really, really, really long time. We lost touch for a while after I sold my tech services company. He is in that same field. Uh, Jameson sold his company and he's been involved. He's a serial entrepreneur and a, a serial seller of businesses as well. And that's not serial like the kind you eat either, everybody. He's got this new book out that, as you all know, I read every single book cover to cover for any of my guests that are on my show. And I do that for multiple reasons. One reason I consider it an endorsement. If I have somebody on my show and I'm talking about their book, I want you to know that I've read it so that there's stuff in there that's really good for you. And you know, it makes a better interview if I've read somebody's book and can actually have an intelligent conversation with them. I encourage you to grab a copy of this book like I do every book I have on my show. This is Jameson West's new book. I think it's his first book, and Jameson will confirm with us about that, The Emotional Side of Selling a Small Business. As all of my devoted listeners know, I sold my company a number of years ago. It's after 15 years of having a multi-state tech services firm. And I can tell you, there is a massive emotional side. So Jameson, I'm going to bring you on camera right now. Welcome to the show. I felt like you channeled me. <laughs> Perfect. Well, this is going to be fun then. Yeah, you know, I, I do have to say when I was reading the the two parts of the book, because there I love that you had two parts, you have a parable style about somebody selling their business. And in the back, you did several case studies of folks in the tech industry with businesses like our own that sold and I was laughing. I'm like, Oh, Robert Lindley, I know him, Dave Sobel, I know him. Arlen Sorensen, of course, we know him, and he wrote the forward. Rich Anderson, Dave Kava. It was like a who's who of all the guys I used to hang out with. And that was a lot of fun. Next time, include me. Let's get a woman's perspective. Perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. 
All right. I need to know why, you know, I rarely ask this question. Okay. I never ask the why this book now. I think I've asked it once before, but I am really curious. This book was a lot of years in the making for you. And what made you decide that it had to be written? So the reason I felt like it had to be written is because I, you know, I struggled a lot through the sale of my IT services business. Um, there were there were unexpected twists and turns, and um, I had resources during that process that I was recommended to read or ingest one way or another that were mostly geared around valuations, due diligence, legalese, finance, um, all of those pieces, parts, but nothing really prepared me uh, for kind of the whole emotional side of the journey. I didn't feel like there was, a, besides conversations with a few people that had gone through it, I just, nobody could direct me to a resource that was helping me understand what it meant to sell and change my career after 21 years of holding my business. Um, it, and it, there were, there were a lot of flavors to that. Yeah. I remember when I was selling my company after I sold it, the the guys at CRN, Steve said, Laura, can you write an article for us about what it's like to sell your company? So I, I wrote like the seven questions to ask yourself before you sell your company. And they ended up not printing it because it had too much of the emotional stuff. Mm -hmm. They wanted more of the, the M&A, the mergers and acquisitions part. And I said, you know what? Your readers really need to understand that, yes, that stuff is so critical, but if they're not prepared for the emotional roller coaster of selling their business, the sale's going to fail pretty quickly and sometimes painfully, as you've talked about in the book. Was there one emotional aspects of selling your business that surprised you more than another when you went back to write the book that perhaps came forward? Yeah, I think, I think the piece that stands out to me, um, I, you know, I felt it acutely while it was happening, but the realization that it stuck with me for several years, because when I actually wrote the book, I was probably, I was a, full three and a half years after the acquisition. Um, there was another trigger for why I started writing it. But um, my, my primary struggle, um, and there were lots of them, but my primary struggle definitely stuck with me, which um, I'm, I've been a member of EO for 10 years or nine years. And I'm a big, I'm a big believer in just open, honest transparency. And it's just how I how I led in my business. Okay, and, and hold one second, just for listeners who do not know, EO is Entrepreneurs Organization, and just give like a, a brief thing because I think it's critical to your conversation. It it really is because um, it's been a big part of who I am over the last nine years. So, um, Entrepreneurs Organization is the largest peer group of entrepreneurs in the globe, over fifteen thousand members. Um, I started in Seattle for five years. Um, I've been a member down here in Las Vegas for the last five years, and I'm currently president of the Las Vegas chapter. Um, and it, we form these smaller peer groups. There's chapters by city and then smaller peer groups that connect and just really share openly so they, they don't feel alone on the island right. every, every month for, for half okay. a day. And it's been, it's been powerful and, and really 
change it. And, and, and through that, you know, I just have become more trusting, more open, more honest. And I think that that kind of underpinning of integrity that I felt with my team and my staff uh, felt challenged during the sale because you're not supposed to, or you can't talk about it sometimes, or some elements of it, or as many would recommend, absolutely none of it, Ziploc. Um, and that was a real struggle for me. And I ended up breaking my own rules on that one, uh, or everybody else's rules, I suppose they were. Um, but it was one more, it was one more really key element into me feeling much more deeply invested into the outcome, um, which was, which made me more emotionally connected to the outcome, which meant that, you know, the buy, I could have been taken advantage of because of that. And, um, I, I was just very, very, very challenged to walking around my office and not telling people what was really going on. That, that did not sit well. It, the idea of what you can say and what you can't say during the sale is such a huge part. And it's part of what I dog-eared inside of here and the emotional impact of staff when you go through it. I had a sale fail years before my final exit sale of my company because I included my staff in the conversational and allowed the buyer to come in and do some due diligence and talk to the staff. And even though I had all sorts of privacy contracts with employees, non-disclosures, confidentiality, whatever, um, one of them, talked to one of my largest clients and told them that a sale was happening. And we hadn't even locked in, you know, the sale. And they said a sale was happening. And the client left and hired the guy. <laughs> so now not only was I down a large client, I also lost one of my top engineers. And if they had stayed, it they would have been part of a much larger organization with a higher salary, more opportunities for, but it didn't matter. They were just angry about all that. I found out because they wanted to buy the company, but they never acted like they were interested in stepping up in an ownership way in the company. They always acted like staff kind of thing. The second one, I chose not to tell anybody anything the sale went through, I did have some annoyed people at the end and some people left and I had to, you know, bring lawyers in for a lot of different reasons. But it is interesting, that idea of it, because so many entrepreneurs, I don't know how you feel about it. Well, I do know how you feel about it because it's all in your book, right? But the staff is more than just staff. They're not just employees and clients are not just clients. You become as an entrepreneur very vested, invested in them and, and their lives. So it's hard. How, how would you recommend somebody align that in themselves? Well, you know, I think, you know, I, I, it's hard to recommend because everybody has their own sense of those relationships. Um, I think at the end of the day, um, I followed my heart a little bit on that one. And, and while I opened myself up for, um, 
or what could have been a much less positive outcome. And the story in the book isn't necessarily my story. There's elements and pieces. I was curious about that because the parable is very, much a, very like, much a fable. I'm yeah. drawing from other people. I'm drawing it, and that didn't end up being exactly me and my story. Um, but there's some pieces and parts that are. And um, the for me, um, there were a couple of key people. Um, especially people I was particularly close to that I had to tell early because they could just sense that I was, I, a part of me was like not even making critical decisions in the business because you don't want to, if, if, if you know that you're going to sell, you're not going to invest in something that doesn't have, that's going to draw cash or not have absolute ROI, or you're not going to do maybe do an internal infrastructure project or whatever. You're not going to do things or invest in ways that the new buyer may not value or pay you for. Um, it's like burning money. So we did for, that was a big part of it for three or four months. I just didn't make decisions. And I was never that I was like, well, let's hold on that. Let's not do that yet because none it's of it would make sense to the outcome of us. And everybody, you know, I, I went from having an open office door to starting to close it a little bit more, or maybe not showing up to certain leadership meetings or whatever, uh, which were those weren't the best ideas or things to do. But I, but I was being, I was just felt very, very challenged by telling people we couldn't do things and not telling them why. We have the cash to do it. We know it's a good idea. We know what we know what the strategy is here to move forward. And, and I would put in the kibosh on things for with no obvious reason. And it was easier for me to withhold information. I wasn't going to make up a lie. So, so, so I just withheld. Um, and that, and that it's the same thing to me. It was a, it was a challenge. It just felt dishonest. And, uh, so I be, I broke down pretty quickly and started telling key people, eventually the whole leadership team. And then it bled out a little bit from there into folks who I trusted. And ultimately for me, not what happened in the book, but Ultimately, for me, I invited the acquiring company up to meet the whole staff and announce the deal. Um, I think it was a full two weeks before we actually signed paperwork. And a lot can go wrong in two weeks before oh, yeah. we sign the paperwork. <laughs> so it was a lot of trust. And, and you know, frankly, the, the folks I sold to, um, they, they were great and they're higher integrity. They, they, but if, if I'd picked the wrong people, um, at that moment, especially, uh, they had me over a barrel. They could have done anything. I was completely invested with my whole team and my, you know, everything. Um, and at that point, I could have been, I could have been picked on pretty hard. But uh, they didn't. They did not take advantage. But uh, that, that's it. Was it definitely put me in a precarious position? Right. The in the parable story, you talked about how the bookkeeper left, and uh, Akasha, Akasha. Which Acacia. is your, yeah, Acacia, which is your sister's, sister's name. name. I, use I use family names. Yes. Yes. Which is beautiful. And you talked about how after she found out about the sale, you told the leadership team, and this is in the parable, not necessarily what matches with, with your story. She was so angry and was walked, stormed out of the meeting. Basically after the meeting was over, you went and you talked to her in the office and it was, this is the worst time ever that you could have done this because this is what's going on in my life. And I, th I know for myself, that was one of the hardest parts 
of telling everybody the company has been sold, even though you are doing everything you can to have them keep everybody. There are redundancies in sales that happen and you've offered to find them new jobs and do everything. That's still that anger of they feel, well, I'm entitled to always have a job and that you will always take care of me as an entrepreneur. That's such a hard thing. I mean, just in the newspaper, what was it yesterday? That guy from better.com, the CEO, he gets on a Zoom call, fires 900 people and accuses them of only working two hours a day because they didn't respond in a timely manner to phone calls or this or that after they got $175 million round of funding, right? So there is that, which is really pretty horrible thing that he did in the way he did it. <laughs> Amazing. It's a much bigger example of it, but there is this sense of, and people are probably going to flood with these conversations with about the thing I'm about to say, employees, staff do feel a sense of entitlement to get a paycheck every week, no matter sort of what they do. As an entrepreneur, some days you, you don't take a salary because you need to meet payroll and maybe the money hasn't come in that you need for something or, or whatever. How did, how did you deal with that and discover that when you were doing the nonfiction portion of this and hearing other people's stories, which is a very common thread, this theme dealing yeah. with that, Jameson, you know, the weighing what's right for you as the owner versus the fact that you're a caretaker in some ways for staff, for clients, for vendors, for whatever. Yeah, this is like, um, it's like a little test of capitalism at its core. It's just this, uh, um, it's this dichotomy between understanding as an entrepreneur and an owner who is really responsible and accountable for making sure that everybody gets, and then you have that weight of responsibility of not only your employees, but their spouses, their children and health insurance and like it, all it's a weight and, and you have those team members who get it and you have those team members that don't. Um, and then when you go to sell, you're like, well, it's time for me to get mine. And, and uh, that doesn't always, that feels pretty selfish. Yeah. Um, so absolutely that goes through your head. So, you know, I, um, Something that I kind of drew from and a little bit uh, in reality, it went in the story, but not exactly. Um, I actually had an all cash offer uh, from a company for that would have guaranteed a little bit more than I would even get with my earnout in my actual sale. Uh, but from a cultural perspective, it was partially the people, but it was also just my brand, my baby, I want a little bit taken care of. I knew it was going to disappear, become somebody else's, a branch of somebody else's office and not really be there. But there was, you know, my clients and my team and I wanted them to have that opportunity uh, to not have, have the carpet ripped out from under me. So I did take a slightly lower, less guaranteed long payout over guaranteed cash up front for that reason. So, you know, there's that fine line between, you know, how, I've, I've seen people sell in an extraordinarily selfish way and, but it's their right. Um, in the sense, I, it's a struggle because it's also their right to do so. They took all the risk to build it. And, um, and, uh, there's a lot of frustration. Uh, there can be a lot of frustration with folks on the team when that happens. I, I, I think I avoided that component. I think people were wondering, why are you selling? We had momentum. We'd gone through a challenging time and, and 
my business, we'd acquired four other, four other companies a few years earlier. And the team that I had at that moment had persevered through some really difficult times and created a really profitable situation for us in uh, 2015. So when we'd sold, I had that, it was just a moment where I had the highest level profits with a, and a great offer and I was exhausted. And it was time for me to change. And it and is hard to explain to people, I guess it feels like everything, like, like everything was clicking. I was like, it's actually better to sell when you're up than when you're down. Um, especially if you personally are just begun to lose the passion for what you're doing. And, uh, and that's where I was at. So, so it, it came across a little differently in the book in the sense that um, Alex, who's our primary character, who's selling, who's selling the company in the book was really focused on just kind of, they were kind of aging out and getting tired of doing, uh, tired of doing. Right. Um, and, um, and that, you know, 20 to 30 years owning a business, a lifetime, you know, raising that baby. Um, it's, it, it's not, you know, it's not forever. And uh, you're going to exit one way or another as Arlen, uh, my, my mentor likes to say, you're going to exit your business one way or another, be intentional instead of accidental. And, uh, and so I, I think there was a lot to draw. There, there's one line in your book that I loved when I, well, there's so many different parts and it fits with what you were just saying. It's on page 32. You know, obviously, you know how many different That's tags I've gotten here. Right. Running a business had its high points and could be incredibly satisfying. But the thing that most captivated Alex about selling was the idea of being free. Free from the total responsibility and accountability. Liberated from the stress, anxiety, and problems. Mundane and existential. He alone was ultimately responsible for solving. That to me summed up the entrepreneur experience at the moment when you realize I'm ready to sell, even if you hadn't thought about it, all of a sudden something comes along and it shifts your perspectives, which is what this show is all about. Shifting perspectives. What, what one question do you get asked that all of a sudden you you stop. It's almost like your breath's taken away and you go, Whoa, I never thought about that before. And when I read that, it really sums up what so many of my clients say when at that moment, when they decide they need to make a shift, they want to sell it's because the weight of it all, all of a sudden is more than they can handle. And you have another spot in the book where you're talking to Jason, who had previously sold a company and he afterwards he's lost weight. He just seems happier and more joyful and like weight has been lifted. Did you feel that after your sale, after the initial, whoa, okay, this was a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, the worst year of my life, particularly from a career perspective, but probably across the board was my last acquisition ended up having to get unwound and failed. And after, at that point, roughly 19 years building a business and focusing on building a sellable asset. Yes, it created income for the family, but I was focused on creating equity in a sellable asset. I almost lost it all. And that was the only time in my life where I, I didn't sleep for extended periods of time and, and the weight and stress of all of it just became too much. 
Um, I also knew I wanted to grow. Um, and so we began, we, we, we hunkered down and got that momentum for one year and got profitability. But I was exhausted to the point where I just knew I couldn't keep up. Um, and ultimately, ultimately, I was going to fail if because I was so exhausted. I was either going to burn out or fail in some other way. Um, and I, that it, to have all of that off my shoulders for a while um, was enormous. And I'm back uh, doing other things, multiple companies. Um, I am a serial entrepreneur. I knew I wasn't over. I was. I had. I had lots to do. Everything I'm doing now feels much, much different. Um, but, but yes, absolute, absolute relief from having all of that off my shoulders. And, and I think even, you know, the type of business, the type of goal, culture, that second and third go round, uh, you do things differently, and you learn so much to avoid those pitfalls that happen your first time around. Yet they sometimes still happen because you get wrapped up in the day-to-day of just hitting payroll, making the business work, the decisions that you have to make. You mentioned that you've had some sales changes happen in, in subsequent businesses that you've created that you have to unwind. And you had a successful exit once before that you learned a lot of lessons from. I mean, Arlen Sorensen tells the story. I mean, what, like eight companies he's bought and sold back and forth. And in the middle of it, he still had some really bad experiences. I mean, there's there's one quote um, with uh, Rich Anderson. I loved it from Rich. I, I, I've always just thought Rich was really cool. Page 117 it says, Rich spent the next 10 years stubbornly trying to prove that it was a good decision, but the financial and operational difficulties created by the purchase were a continuing challenge. It, it seems like no matter how much we know in the day-to-day, we often still get stuck in, I don't know if it's necessarily ego or being ashamed if you admit failure, even though the world is all about, hey, failure is great, but that doesn't necessarily feel really great. Yeah. And I think it's, there's a lot of self-justification. You have to, you know, it's part of why I'm in EO. I talk about that a lot, but um, it's like, we have to show up with a happy face, right? I mean, it's, it's part of our role to, to the degree possible to, be optimists about where we're headed with our organization and lead the team, you know, through troubled waters. And there's a lot of weight in that. So sometimes you make a big mistake and it's, it's a, it, you have to be able to admit those mistakes, but to, to the degree that you can, you're always trying to positively move through them. And uh, yeah, it could, it can be, I think it depends on who and how and what happens. Um, but certainly um, I, I called my three acquisitions, not just similar to Rich, but I had three acquisitions, kind of three and a half, I like to say. I, I either call it three or four because my last one was kind of a two for one. But my first acquisition uh, was extremely good, easy. There was The culture was blended very nicely. It was accretive financially. My second one was so-so, probably not worth it, but it was a good attempt. And my last one almost destroyed it. So I call it the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. And, and, and it, it, it almost took us down. And 
I did end up absolutely admitting fairly quickly that the last one was a big mistake, but my ego got tied up in saying, I can do anything. I'm just going to keep buying companies until I'm whatever. And, um, and then that little smack of reality hit me and, and, and stopped me in my tracks. And ultimately, I, ultimately, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have sold. I mean, that was, that was, the, that was the whole pivot for me as I realized that I wasn't invincible. Was there a question that somebody asked you that helped you move through that? or that you asked somebody else, or was it literally just like that smack on the head of a situation? That helped me decide, that helped me decide to recover or to sell? Both. Both. Because they're, they're yeah, both critical. I, yeah, they're both critical. So I was a member of a peer group, uh, besides I was an EO, but I was also in another peer group, uh, formerly HTG, now called Evolve. I would that, remember uh, that's how we met through HTG. Yeah. Yes. It was just in case folks didn't know what it was, very similar, but they're all not in the same geography, but they're all in the IT services space. And of course, Arlen was uh was my facilitator and mentor. And uh so there were a lot of conversations with him. Um as a matter of fact, to the degree that there was even a fund called Hands That Give, where I almost didn't make payroll uh, one week. And, and there was, there was going to be potentially some help in that regard. Didn't end up needing it, which is, which was good. So just skin of my teeth, I had peers who were ready to lean in and help me. So I realized I had support of fellow entrepreneurs that helped me get through it. But then ultimately my decision to sell was, you know, after a year of just kind of forcing incredible, forcing, but asking for incredible output from my people that probably wasn't sustainable long-term, but created a highly profitable situation <laughs> was, um, you know, and then the help, which was actually part of what made the acquisition easier in my world is we were, we were really working people in a way that probably wasn't sustainable and in uh, a sale relieved that, uh, relieved that pressure as well. So it, it really was great timing. So it wasn't a lot, it wasn't a lot of work for me to wrap my head around selling. Um, it was a lot of work for me to wrap my head around fixing the problem. I was I was at a point where I was ready to give up, but I don't know what that would have looked like. It would have been scary. It's not who I am, um, but I, but it was certainly frightening. I, I mean, I, listening to you talk, it reminds me of my thought process. Both times I was going to sell the company, the time that it it failed to go through, and then the second time when the whole sale went in six weeks from start to finish, it was, I'm ready to sell. Okay. Here's a couple of buyers. Okay. Six weeks later, it's sold. And choosing like you did one that would help my staff and my clients a little bit further along, maybe changed my payout differently or whatever it was. It was very much the, for me, I felt like a failure at first for wanting to sell because I hadn't grown the company to the level I wanted to grow it to. It wasn't even that I wanted to, that I felt I should have grown it to, right? Seven figures wasn't enough, low seven figures. It needed to be high seven figures, eight figures kind of thing. And the ups and downs weren't enough. So there was all of that, I'm a failure if I sell versus the thought process of, oh my God, somebody wants to buy my business, you're a success 
because not every business has an exit with a sale, right? Nobody's there to buy it or what they want to buy it for is a dollar <laughs> or, you know, strictly basically we'll give you a salary and, and that's about it for a year and maybe a percent of the revenues. But the moment for me on the six week process to the sale was when I realized I didn't have the energy to build it anymore. I didn't want to put all of those high hours in like you were just talking about that eventually you burn out that I'd been running on reserves I didn't have anymore. And I just didn't have the energy to go, okay, we're going to make a change and, and grow it to a different level. I didn't, I didn't want to change staff again. I didn't want to do whatever it was needed. That's a hard spot, Jameson, you know, that you were just talking about. And I just described, and I, I feel like not enough people talk about it when it comes to sales of the companies. And that's one of the reasons why I love your book, the emotional side of selling a business, small business, because and whether it's a small business or a large business, I mean, when the case study of Arlen, you know, over a hundred employees, 20, almost 20 million in revenue. I don't consider that a small business. <laughs> I, I don't, Definitely Maybe I'm wrong, medium business, yeah. you know, but there's so much of, about that when you, when you were writing, and taking the case studies, is there anything that stood out that was consistent throughout all the experiences? Well, the most consistent thing for me was that um, no matter who I talked to who'd owned a business for a significant length of time, and it was their first real business, um, when they went to sell, they had they had a story. There wasn't one that didn't have a story, right? They're like, like, I started just asking a group of people who I knew had kind of followed a similar journey without knowing that they'd had an emotional, a couple of them I knew about pieces of what of their emotional Dave Kava. Like I knew, I knew pieces of their emotional journey, certainly, but I, but unexpectedly different things came out. Um, what was consistent was I didn't have to look far for case studies. Everybody goes through this in right. one way or another, just like you're talking about. Um, there was, uh, I, I think the problems that arose in each situation were inconsistent. Um, it, there's so many things that can happen, uh, that you can't prepare for all of them, which is actually what I love kind of about Arlen's feedback, which is you don't know what's going to come. You don't know how the negotiation's going to look. You don't know, but what you can do is know exactly what your line in the sand is. Um, before you even get started. So you don't get drug over it without knowing that's happening, right? Uh, you can't get so invested that you uh, deal yourself a poor hand and, and end up in a place that is unfair to yourself. And uh, and that's really, that really was you know, the outcome of Arlen's case study was that list of non-negotiables, which is, uh, which is something that I've leveraged now in kind of in all kinds of negotiations is going in beforehand being very very clear where your line in the sand is so you don't get so you don't get trouble uh, i love the concept of the line in the sand and the non-negotiables with the sale but what i love best is what you just said which is it ties into so many other things in life right whether it's personal relationships business relationships interactions with children 
going into a store to buy something. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've gone in to buy a car and, you, you know, you get a quote back internet based or whatever nowadays, and then you show up to get the car and all of a sudden there's things that keep trying to drag you over the line that they don't disclose and they think that that's okay. And you have to be willing, where's your line in the sand where you say, I'm willing to walk away without that car, without selling the business, without buying something. And what did you learn about yourself with your lines in the sand? I think one of my key learnings was, or one of my key lines in the sand, I should say, was financially, um, I did, as part of my deal, take an earn out. And the problem with that, from a selling perspective, and, and uh, many sellers, there's, that's a component. Um, in any business, in any vertical, that's a component of your sale. And the scary part for a seller is when, when there is a performance-based outcome, but they have no control of that performance. And that was mm -hmm. really scary to me. Um, so I, I had to discount whatever was out of my control almost entirely from the sale. So I was counseled in that uh, from somebody who'd gone through a sale and got virtually none of their earnout. Uh, just pretend that doesn't exist. Is it still pat over your line? And that became a negotiation point. And I still, I, I believed I wasn't going to have zero of my earnout, and I didn't. I did better than that. But um, I didn't get 100% of what is calculated. You're going to get, you know, we'll give you X percent of your revenue for the next three years. Well, your revenue is going to change in the next three years. You don't have any control of that. You don't know what clients are going to stay. I did not stay with the business when I sold. Um, so I had literally no control. So it was really hard to, uh, to have, you know, relatively significant portion of the portion of the outcome tied to performance that I had nothing to do with. Um, so that was a, that was a big trigger point for me is navigating that or negotiating that in a way that's fair. It, you explained it very well in the book, the whole idea of performance-based payouts, earnouts, as you talked about. And, and for the listeners, just an explanation about that. What means often in a sale of a company is they'll give you some money up front versus a 100% cash payout, and which is typically they're buying your customer list and they're going to destroy, the, they're going to break down the company afterwards. They just want the, the list. So the performance-based buyout means over some length of time, one year, two years, three years, based on your original customer base, not new customers that come in or anything like that, whatever those original customers are, you're going to get some percentage of that revenue. And Jameson, I, I'm sure this happened with you. You alluded to it. Uh, I didn't have a performance-based buyout in mine. I negotiated something different. But I've seen people, they sell their company and then they go, oh, well, we're really not going to change anything for a year or whatever, which makes it easier to kind of have an idea what that number is. But then they decide to stop programs or change programs or change how they're charging for things to your existing customer base or they let go of staff that people are comfortable with so clients leave, it affects that payout, but you have no control over it because they now own the company. Yep, 100%. That's, that's exactly what happened. And it's scary, right? And it's, it's not fun to lose that type of control. No. It feels wrong. 
<laughs> many, good. many levels because they know they're going to do that. Yeah, they do. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't, and I don't think there was a, at least in my situation, I, I've seen other situations where there's a lack of integrity in that regard. In my situation, there, I don't think it was a lack of integrity on the acquirer's uh, side, but changes are going to happen because they have right. their own, they have their own people, their own processes, their own culture, their own, all these things that now as a coach and a consultant, I help businesses build. Right. They have all of those things already established. And as an, as the acquiree, um, that's not something my, my team gets to dictate or participate in. Right. We just, we're, we become a circumstance of, of their, of, of all of the decisions that acquiring company has made. That's why you should never sell your company without a good lawyer and a good accountant. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Read the fine print in the, in the contract uh, that that's there. I, I can tell you that many, many deals I've done in my life. I was very thankful for exceptional attorneys, financial advisors and mentors that not all the time, because I didn't always take their advice, but tried to help prevent something from cascading to a worse situation because of some obscure phrase in a contract that you think means nothing, but really means something. So I, I want to yeah, talk I, about- I, I, I yeah. personally had like a little, I just personally had a little thing that I didn't expect in my agreement that my attorney caught very, very late and um, scared me. Um, ultimately, again, a buyer with integrity, we worked it out and figured it out. But, but, I, but I had, and it wasn't the same thing that's in the book, but I had, you know, I had something that, that put fear of like, wow, this isn't going to happen. And I've already told it. That, those, you just have to be so diligent. That's why that great attorney makes such a big difference. Mm -hmm. the, one last thing I want to get to before the end of the show was the conversation you have in your book about financials in here and the emotional side of that as well. In the parable side and in the nonfiction case study side, it often came up about mixing the business and some personal expenses in there, things not being booked correctly. Um, if somebody pays you in advance before the end of the year for work in the new year and how that impacts sales of companies and how those can be gotchas and, and often are emotional kinds of things. Can you talk to that? Because I think it's really important for my listeners as entrepreneurs to understand why that is such a critical element, whether you're planning on selling or not. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and really, it's that difference between so you know EBITDA profit and adjusted EBITDA, which are all these ideas of ad backs and stuff that happen in the business. Um, when we, while you might file on it, so two do, two kind of different pieces. The other side is like cash versus accrual, which you mentioned. So the you might file taxes on a cash basis, but the accrual side of what you do, um, booking properly unearned revenue. This happened to me pretty badly. It was actually a company. It wasn't part of my sale. It was part of, it was one of my acquisitions that really failed. Um, a company that I acquired, the owner had, uh, had 
um, taken a couple of annual contracts as prepayments for the whole year and didn't put them on the books as a liability. Um, I still owed two clients a year's worth of our services, but the money was gone. Um, so that's, that should have been a liability on the books. And that really, really created a, a difficult, I went to, I went to the clients. I was like, well, you need to pay us. And they're like, we prepaid for the whole year <laughs> before the sale. And that ended up being, um, that ended up being challenging. So that, that's just something to pay attention to. But what we're, what we're really talking about where you started was owner expenses that kind of get mixed in. And I think that that's a more acute one, especially for somebody who's not been through this, that's a solo owner, because it tends to happen more in those scenarios than when there's multiple owners, because people do a better job of separating personal and business. But when you're a solo owner, which for all intents and purposes, I was, I had small, small equity pieces for a couple of folks, but um, my CPA and everybody else was, you know, you buy your car under the business, you some percentage gets written off under the business. You may have a home office that you're buying under the business. You have all these pieces and expenses that you can cover because they're legitimately tax write-offs or some percentage of them are, but the bills flowing out of the business before you get whatever you're drawing. And I've seen some people uh, get to the point where that's a significant component of their lifestyle and they're relying on the business for their lifestyle. And the but when they step back and they look at their paycheck, they just don't connect that right. to the business. So when you step out of the business and lose all of that, you have to you have to be ready to calculate not only what it's going to cost personally from an income perspective, uh, but on the flip side, what's positive is all of that usually gets added. If that wasn't necessary for running the business, it goes to your bottom line when an acquirer looks at the business and says, we don't need to be paying for your truck or your home office or any of these things. So it, you can look more profitable and increase your sale, but um, I, I think I have definitely like it, after owning the business for twenty some years, uh, going and figuring out how I pay for er, take care of everything that it was that it become just a part and parcel of the business was definitely a struggle. Um, you sell your business health insurance, go get yeah. health insurance. It's as simple as that, right? I mean, there's all these pieces that you just are like ah, the business took care of all. All gone. So go figure it out. Yeah. Plus the health insurance when you're in a business of a certain size is a different cost factor than when you're going to get it on your own. This was a lot of it was pre Obamacare and all those other things. So it's like <gasps> all of a sudden, <laughs> can yeah. you even get insurance as an individual that doesn't cost $2,000 a month or whatever it may be? Right. Yeah. Those different pieces. I have a friend of mine who one of the perks he gave all of his employees was he leased them all cars and then his business started failing and he couldn't afford all of those lease payments anymore, but all the cars were sort of in his company name and the employees were like, well, we can't afford that payment. Well, if he reneges on all of those, he's still got to pay them the cars because the leases weren't up and how that impacted. So, those are things that people really do need to look at. Thank you for talking about that. I think it's something many entrepreneurs don't think about. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. a it's a big change. It's a big change. It, you know, and it's it it, it kind of raises. It's an interesting. I've I've had several entrepreneurs come to me since, the, and I I would really have to put thought into this. But I've had several entrepreneurs come to me and ask about 
books about the emotional side post-sale of a business. Because my whole book is about up to the sale, the moment of the sale. And, right. and then they kind of go off. But um, we're kind of getting into what does it look like afterwards? Like, what does it look like when all of a sudden you are free? Um, everything that we talked about um, in the book. So our protagonist, Alex, is free. And now what Now what happens? And it, it's a it's a that's a struggle. That's a big question. Yeah, and in in we're not. I don't want to share what happens, but in the the parable side, that tells one possible scenario after the sale, but immediately after the sale, not necessarily six months, a year, two years down the road. I know for myself, I kind of felt adrift after the contract ended with the company that bought mine. And I started another business, you know, I was writing and keynoting and then I stopped to take care of my mom for six years and then she passed away and I lost my purpose. And I ended up doing a life plan with Arlen and Lori Sorensen. And he's like, Lori, you lost your purpose. Let's help you figure it out. And I still feel kind of uncertain in some areas. So there is a lot because that baby, right? Unless you create another baby, mm -hmm. <laughs> but then you still go through that, that same, I, I swear, Jameson, I think a lot of entrepreneurs become serial entrepreneurs because they need that baby to give them purpose. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. You have to, you have to find person. And I think that that's exactly where people feel adrift when they sell. And and again, through EO, I've had multiple people reach out. There's a conversations after I publish the book and our forums and stuff about, hey, does the book talk about this? Does it address this? And I say, like, no, really. We're, we're talking about post-sale, kind of what you're doing. So these folks that spend 20 years, that was their purpose, uh, at least to some degree. They may certainly have family and all these other components. But as, as an entrepreneur, with all the accountability and responsibility and weight of all those other people, there's purpose behind that. feel driven. Right. Um, whether you're through the clients or the staff or whoever it is, there's a, there's a tremendous amount. When you're released to that, it's momentarily freeing, but now you've got to re-anchor yourself. That's a great word, re-anchor yourself, because it is easy to get adrift when you've just been 90 hours a week or, or more, even though you may not be in the office more than 50 or 60, every waking moment as an entrepreneur, you're thinking about the business, thinking about the staff, thinking about the clients. And if you're in the fields, we've been in the technology field, it's you go from 24 seven, 365, going whose network might go down, what ransomware attack may happen to, oh, I don't have to worry about that anymore. You, you kind of don't know what to do. The stress level just completely crashes and your autonomic nervous system doesn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, it's kind of maybe a little bit why I, now part of my businesses are a little less service driven and soft, they're more software driven because right. it, that was, you know, every business is different, but service businesses are particularly, you know, you're, you're engaged and driven and it's a, it's a very, very it's challenge, right? Yeah. Uh, the businesses we were in were very, very challenging. I would not want to start another MSP IT services company today. No way. Not with ransomware, what it is and all the other factors. I just, I, 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 my heart and my stomach couldn't handle it <laughs> anymore. All right. We're getting close to the end of the show. I want to make sure you can 
you tell people how they can get your your great book, The Emotional Side of Selling a Small Business. And this is not, to me, this is not just for companies that are starting to sell their business or thinking to sell their business. I think anybody who's an entrepreneur should grab a copy of this book to understand the not only the emotional side, but you have some really great mergers and acquisitions information in here about that that you need to start thinking about your plan from the moment you start your company. And it's really great stuff in here. So how do people get this book and how do they reach out to you? Yeah. So um, it's on Amazon makes it really simple, but the easiest link for me to give you is jamesonwest.com slash book. Uh, that's the, that's the easy way to get right to it. Uh, you can contact me there and, uh, and there's a link to the, there's a link to the Amazon. Page. So jamesonwest.com slash book. Let's see if I can put that up there for the live stream, jamesonwest.com slash book. So they can link over to buy the book and they can also reach out to you. Last thought you'd like to leave my listeners with and anything that I didn't ask you that I wish that you wish I had asked you. You know, I, I, I think the, I, I appreciate that you recommend that any entrepreneur read the book. I think my last thought is that every entrepreneur should read the book because you are going to exit your business one way or another at some point. Um, and this at least starts to help you think through all the trials and tribulations and emotional components of what it looks like to do so as a sale. Um, and even if you're selling to your staff or your family or turning it over, there's a lot, there are a lot of helpful components to just kind of help you think about the outcomes. Um, but I, I really do believe intentionality is a super important part of owning a business. You've got to know where you're going and what the end game looks like. And so this will help you think through that component. I love that. And it really, it truly does. And I'm holding the book up so people can see it on the live stream. But uh, for those listening on the podcast, you can't see us. So consider go checking out <laughs> where you can see Jameson and I talking. Jameson, thanks so much for being on the show. And I'm glad we've reconnected in person for the first time in years. The The book truly is something special. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I always talk about the books that I have on the show and my guests that I have on the show. I've known Jameson for a really long time and I love his honesty and his integrity throughout all the years I've known him. And I really love this book, The Emotional Side of Selling Your a Small Business, because it really talks to what it means to be an entrepreneur at all phases of your business. And it says things that you're probably saying to yourself, but you've never admitted to yourself before. I'd love for you to share on social media or shoot me an email at laura at laurasteward.com to let me know what you think of this episode and what you think of possibly selling your business, your experience as an entrepreneur, because you know, I'm all about the questions. And at the end of the day, the right questions can change your life. So what are you asking? Have a great day, everyone. You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.